0: And I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9 again this morning, Matthew 9. Now, normally in our study through Matthew, we'd be going forward. Uh, But today, I'd like to do something a little bit different and just take one little step backward to a text that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, but to look at it this morning in a new light. And so Matthew chapter 9 again. you're using a house Bible, that is page 814. You know, just like in the natural world, in the life of grace, there are seasons. Seasons of life. Just like in the natural world, winter gives way to spring, and the heat of the summer gives way to the cool of the autumn, So in our lives, times of brokenness and repentance give way to revival and restoration. Seasons of conviction are met with forgiveness. Periods of longing are answered with fulfillment. John must decrease and Christ increase. And we go from... Fasting to feasting, from petition to praise, and all our prayers are turned into thanksgivings. Many of you today come to these services and you're in different seasons of grace. And I want to remind you that whatever season of grace in which you find yourself this morning, may be a very difficult season, but I want to remind you that sorrow endures for a night, but joy does come in the morning. I've found that my whole Christian experience has alternated between these two polarities. And both of them, both of them are a part of the work of God's grace in my heart. Both sorrow and joy. Both the warnings and the comforting assurances. Both the law and the promise. Desperation and satisfaction. Longing and thanksgiving. You know, there are times in our lives as Christian people when what you and I need very desperately are the warnings of the Scripture. And there are other times when what we desperately need are the assurances of God's Word. There are times when it's in our long-term spiritual interest to undergo seasons of longing and waiting on God, and other times where God just overwhelms us with joyful satisfaction in Himself. These twin graces take turns, alternately exposing our need Or, on the other hand, pointing us to the sufficiency of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Hunger, whether you're talking about spiritual hunger or physical hunger or hunger in some metaphorical sense, hunger works to drive us to our own sense of need. And here's the way it has worked for me and no doubt for so many of you, is that hunger drives us to come to ourselves like that prodigal son and the pigs die. And to say, where am I? Oh Lord, I need you. I need to come back to your table for a crust of sustaining bread. And you know what? We get up and our desperation, and our longing, and our conviction, and our repentance, all of that drives us back to Jesus Christ, and we come and we cast ourselves before Him and we say, I'm not worthy to be your son, just make me a servant in your household. And then you know what the Father does? I mean, have you experienced this? He says, get the fat cow and kill it, because we're going to have a feast. I'm going to lavish you with mercy and grace and forgiveness. I'm going to revive you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to give you again the joy of your salvation. I'm going to renew the spirit of my son upon your life. And he just pours out his blessings upon you. And you say, this God is a lavish God. This God is a foolishly lavish God to bestow such kindness upon me. I I think that's the way the Christian life works. The Lord brings those seasons of conviction, of desperation and of longing, and then He fulfills them in Himself, and in nothing other than Himself. Our Lord, I'm telling you today, our Lord has just such an uncanny way of lavishing us with blessings on the one hand and exposing our weaknesses on the other so as to bring us along step by step down the path of sanctification so that I find myself saying with the writer of the proverb, feed me with food that is needful for me lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Like He's not even in my thoughts. Or on the other hand, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. You know, for God to give me too much satisfaction and assurance and happiness would leave me fat and uncomfortable and unneedful, unmindful of my need of Him. But for Him to leave me in perpetual longing and conviction and desperation would drive me to despair. And what I have found is that the Lord knows exactly how to mingle these together in perfect, perfect wisdom. And that is that gives me a great measure of peace. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain or pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. Whatever the gracious work of God that he is doing in your life right now, whether it's a part of pain or or pleasure, I admonish you, brothers and sisters, don't let it be ineffective. In just a couple of chapters, Jesus is going to say to the crowds about the ministry of John the Baptist and himself, he's going to say, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We we sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. There are some people upon whom the the varied graces of God are all wasted. And I urge you not to be one of those. Two weeks ago, we read this discussion between Jesus and and the disciples of John in 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 chapter 9 here. And I just want to remind you today friends that God has times for you to fast. And then he has times for you to feast. And both of them are designed to work together, to interplay off of one another to draw your heart to his. Let's look again at this text and reflect on it in a, in a in a Different way than we did a couple of weeks ago. As verses 14 and 15 of this chapter, we're really not going to um, take time to look at the surrounding context too much. But Jesus is um, has sat down with, to a, a big feast with Matthew and his former colleagues and the tax office, and that prompts this. Uh, the record of this discussion, verse 14: the disciples of John came to him, to Jesus. And they said, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But right now, he says, how can they fast? There would come a time, Jesus said, when he would be taken away you ever been there? Have you ever lost your awareness, your sense of the closeness of Jesus, the presence of Christ in your life? I dare say that most every Christian has had a season in their life um, where they have experienced that to some degree. Jesus said those days will come those days when His presence seems far, when your prayers seem to go utterly unanswered, when you seem to be completely abandoned to your own sin. When the groom is taken away, He said, then the bride will fast. And there are times in our lives when it is like for us the bride of Song of Solomon who awakes in the middle of the night and she finds that her beloved is gone. His presence is Taken away from her. She says, I sought Him whom my soul loves. I sought Him, but I found Him not. I will arise now and go about the city and in the streets and in the squares. I will seek Him whom my soul loves. I sought Him and I found Him not. I called Him, but He gave no answer. If you find my beloved, tell Him I am sick with love. Every Christian goes through seasons where he experiences just that sense of loss of the presence of his bridegroom. And we need to listen because those times when the Lord withdraws himself, friend, he is awakening, he is reawakening in us a sense of, of our love and our need and our desire for Him, whom, whose presence has been removed from us, that's the way this works for good in our lives. The Puritan John Flavel acknowledged that quote the commonness, the commonness or long continuance of God's mercies, which should endear them the more. And every day increase our obligation to God causes them to seem cheap and small things. And therefore, God does so often threaten them, yea, and remove them that their worth and excellency may thereby be acknowledged. It's the person who doesn't have access to the feast who feels what he is missing. Sometimes the man who has everything he could possibly imagine every day is the one who appreciates it the least. In that way I say, the Lord works. He works through these seasons in our lives and there are times when we need to fast. Have you ever known this? Have you ever known the painful joy of fasting in the absence of the sense of Christ's presence. In some ways, fasting is a lost spiritual discipline for us today, especially for modern American Christians. A number of years ago, I wrote, Today I fast. I fast because I cannot feel. My heart has grown cold toward Christ. I need reviving. O Lord, may my soul desire You as my body desires food. And then, may I eat and be satisfied and eat again and again and again. Please hear my prayer and have mercy on me. See, when the groom is taken away, the bride will fast. But there are other times when God's presence really comes home. And when the Savior draws near. And when God's bounty is all around. And you feel lavished upon with the goodness of His presence. And then, no more fasting. It's time to put away the fast. It's time to feast It's time to give thanks. It's time to worship Him with thanksgiving. And there are times like that. There are times like that in our lives personally. There are times like that um, among a people, even a nation. The uh, Westminster Confession of Faith and in like manner the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith while denying that any man-made holy days, quote-unquote, can be binding in any way for the people of God, do nevertheless acknowledge the appropriateness of days of fasting and days of thanksgiving. Because the Scripture itself does. Thanksgiving for special occasions, of the kind providence of God. And they acknowledge the appropriateness of those things, those days, because there are examples within the Scripture itself. The people of Israel had such times of thanksgiving that were celebrated. Perhaps most notable among them, the Feast of Purim. I want you to turn to the little history of that, which comes in one particular book of the Bible. Does anybody know what book that is? Yeah, I heard somebody whisper it, the book of Esther. Back to Esther chapter 9. That comes before Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and all that, right? You're hunting for it there. Esther 9. Most of you know the story. Wicked Haman, and this is where all the kids say, boo, right? All right, kids, you ready? Are you all ready? Here we go. Wicked Haman, boo. All right, good. Wicked Haman plots the destruction of the Jews. He wants to see them all destroyed. But when the Jews heard about that, they spontaneously began to fast. Mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. And Mordecai, who was in the king's court, heard about this plot and urged his niece, Esther, who was a queen in Persia. She, he urged her to go before the king and make petition for the people of God. And so Esther and Mordecai called upon all of the Jews in that place to fast for three days in preparation, in petition uh, before the Lord to express their penitence for their own sins and their their neediness for God's mercy. And so finally she comes to the king and she makes known the plot and the king is furious and in the end, Haman is hanged. And all the children go, yay! Everybody ready? Haman is hanged! Yay. Yay! All right, good, good. We don't get to do that very often, so, you know, every once in a while. Well, the Jews were allowed to defend themselves. And as a result, of course, God spared the people. And they lived. God preserved His people. And then that leads into this discussion about Purim, verse verse number 20, Esther 9. And Mordecai recorded these things. "...and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year after year, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies... And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And if you go down to the end of verse 26, it says, Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that they, without fail, would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year. Verse the beginning of verse twenty-six gives also the the story. Uh, sorry, I skipped that. Beginning of verse twenty-six. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term poor, poor. Comes from the Persian word for lots, Um, you know, like lots that you cast, casting the dice and so forth, which is what Haman did to try to discern the times and the seasons and find a time that would be fortuitous for the destruction of God's people. But God, in the end, had the last laugh, as it were, and we know that the lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so now they celebrate this feast of the casting of the lots, which turned out for their good and not for their destruction. What I wanted you to notice about this, what makes this feast uh, particularly instructive for us, as it did for the writers of the confessions, was that this feast, um, this time of thanksgiving, was not prescribed, that is, it wasn't... Commanded. It wasn't a commanded feast in the law of Moses for the people of Israel like some others were. You know that there were three great feasts that were commanded by God. The Passover, Feast of Booths, the Feast of Weeks. And each of these feasts, all of Israel was to go and join themselves together in Jerusalem and worship God and, and either either fast or feast as the occasion required. But this wasn't prescribed... But it was a feast that was commended by inclusion in the Holy Scripture, and many, many Jews did observe the Feast of Purim. So there are times then when it is appropriate that we set aside a season of feasting and thanksgiving for God's good providences. And such a thing, of course, happened many times. In colonial America, with its uh, strong Puritan influences, there would be there were a number of days set aside for public fasting in colonial America, and then even later in, into uh, into the history of the, the federal government as well. But especially in the area of uh, of the colonial days, there were days of fasting that were proclaimed in various colonies at different times, or days of unusual public thanksgiving to God for for some kind providence of God. And they would rejoice and they would gather together and they would feast. Now, of course, we have come quite a long way from that tradition, sadly. Most Americans, um, for them, Thanksgiving is kind of a day of being sort of vaguely Thankful for something to someone, not quite sure who. It's a day to get off work. I guess that's good. It's a day to eat lots of turkey and sit on the couch and watch football. <laughs> so people are sort of generally in a good mood. Maybe get to see family. That's a mixed blessing. It might be good. It might be bad, depending on what Thanksgiving dinner goes, goes like. We've come a long way from a public acknowledgement of the kind mercies of God upon us as a people. Certainly fasting is a lost spiritual discipline. don't even hear Christians talking very much about fasting these days. But I also I might argue that feasting is a lost Spiritual discipline. I mean real as unto the Lord feasting. David Mathis, who is the author of Habits of Grace, enjoying Jesus through the spiritual disciplines. I think he put it well. He said, it is true that fasting is sadly overlooked and too often forgotten. And yet, perhaps counterintuitively, True feasting is also in decline through familiarity and lack of spiritual purpose. Most of us have never given any serious thought to what it might mean to feast with Christ-honoring intentionality. We've grown dull to the wonder of ample food and drink through constant use and even overuse. When every day is a virtual feast, we lose the blessing of a real one. When every meal is a pathway to indulgence, not only is fasting lost, but true feasting is as well. And that is sadly where we find ourselves. I mean, sadly, in, in some way, I mean, we have an abundance of blessing, but what is so often the case is that people who have an abundance, So take it for granted that they can partake of that abundance without any real heart of worship. And so the feast just becomes an indulgence rather than a feast to the Lord. How can we make this Thanksgiving any different? How can we make it a real feast as unto the Lord? Corresponding to a fast. Let me give you nine brief admonitions. I said brief. You heard that word, right? All right. Nine brief admonitions. One, prepare for joy by repentance, prepare for feasting by fasting. There are times in our lives when we need more introspection and penitence and affliction and i say again this is not this is not a punishment by god this is a grace of god do you know that it is a grace of god to prepare the soul to be amazed when mercy comes i'm not saying that we literally have to fast from food before this Thursday, though that may not be a bad idea, not because of our waistlines, but for our spirit. But in general, we prepare for, we prepare ourselves to be amazed by God's lavish mercies by going through times of repentance and by earnest prayer, by recognition of our need. That's the first thing. Second, Begin with a rehearsal of the blessings of God. Begin your feast with rehearsing the blessings of God. We've sometimes, I think, sung sung that little song. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Begin with a rehearsal. Of the blessings of God. You start and, and when you when you name the first five or ten, and you think you've exhausted it pretty well, then start going, walking mentally through all of the aspects of your life. Walk through your home, home life, walk through your work life, walk through your church life, walk through your community life, think about physical. Think about spiritual. Think about preserving you from where you could have been. Think about the blessings of where you are. I mean, you start doing that. You really do. And you will be overwhelmed. But of course, the greatest blessings are not simply the ones that we count in our minds, but the ones that we feel in our hearts. And it's a matter of reflecting and meditating that will begin to set the stage for real feasting with great joy and thankfulness. Three, measure what you have in light of what you, you know what I'm going to say? What you deserve. Measure what you have in light of what you deserve. Because there are, sometimes we come to a, a time of public Thanksgiving and there's someone that's going to say, I have no reason to give thanks today. I can't think of anything. When I sit down to count my blessings, the only thing that I can think of is my overwhelming grief and my difficulty. And yet the Scripture says, give thanks in all circumstances. How in the world can someone do that? when their spouse has just died, or when they've lost their job, or when everything at home is falling apart, how can somebody possibly come into God's presence with thanksgiving? Well, you know, in one sense, it goes back to the idea that there are seasons, and this may just be a very difficult season for you, that God is using to prepare you for a season of great joy, but in another sense, we can rejoice even in the difficulties of our lives. When we remember, not when we compare what we have not with what other people have, when we compare what we have not with what we crave, but when we compare what we have with what we deserve. For who has what he deserves? Haven't you been given far and away more grace than what you deserve? Measure what you have in light of what you deserve for. Move from rejoicing in the blessings to boasting in the blesser. Now we're really getting to the heart of what it means to enter into thanksgiving. And there's a little test. If God, in His providence, chose to take away all of those blessings that you're counting, except Himself. Would it be enough for you? Would He be enough? 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes, their joy their delights, their satisfaction on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. On God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Wait, wait, wait now, wait a minute. That verse is a tricky one because he almost sounds like, don't enjoy what God gave you. Right? You rich, don't trust in your riches, don't enjoy your riches. Then on the other hand, he says, God gave you everything that you have to enjoy. So what are you supposed to do? right? And the key that that brings them all together is this. When When the things that God gives me to enjoy, I use them as a means to enjoying Him Himself, then, and only then, can I fully ever enjoy the things that I have. And you know what? By the way, If you have that spirit, it doesn't matter whether the things that you have or the blessings that you have are great in the eyes of the world or small. The simplest blessings are outsized when they are lenses through which you see the greatness and the kindness and the goodness, the lavish goodness of your God. That's what he's getting at here. Enjoy the blessings. If you've got good food, brother, enjoy it. You've got good gifts in this world? Then enjoy them to the hilt, but only as a measure of your enjoyment of God, as a, as a means to enjoying your God, the giver of all the gifts. Number five, sing a hymn of praise together. When you gather around your Thanksgiving meal, if you do that, Open a hymn book. You know you can buy a hymn book right back there, Brother Eric. He's got a whole bunch. And this is not to make money, this is just to help you get a hymn book in your family. Um, what are they? 10, 15? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, you, know, you can you could go back and pick one up. Or if you say, I don't I don't even read I mean it's just like all a bunch of chicken scratch to me. Then uh, go online. If you go to our website, you can go down and find a link for um, several audio resources for hymns. Uh, The Cyber Hymnal is one, and you can listen to a hymn and uh, sing a hymn together. Number six, praise the Lord in prayer together. Praise the Lord in prayer together. And what I mean by that is not just pray, because we always pray before we eat. So thank you for the food in Jesus' name, amen. But I mean pray. Right? And it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be magic words. But, it, but here's what it has to be. It has to be in earnest. That's what matters. I mean, in earnest. I believe in the goodness of God and that everything I have is from His overflowing kindness that drips and pours down upon me. And so I just want to say sincerely, thank you, you do that. That will sanctify your feast. First Timothy 4.4, Paul tells Timothy that everything created by God is good, right? All the gifts are good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. Number seven... When you feast, slow down and taste. Oh, now this is where you get to worship God with your body. There are some ways that we only worship God with our minds, with our hearts. A lot of what we do in our worship is just that way, right? But God has in His providence ordained that we be not just spirits floating around. We have bodies, and He gave us these bodies as means through which to interact with the world around us. Through these bodies, our souls can see the world that God has made. Through our bodies, our souls can touch can hug, can hold. Through our bodies, we can taste. And you know what? When you sit down and you eat that meal, you taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what real feasting is. It is stopping to savor, not just the goodness of the turkey, but through the turkey, the goodness of God. And if that sounds blasphemous, I'm sorry. The Bible says whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. You can do everything in your body to God's glory, and you ought to. Number eight. Let the let the variety and the bounty of the feast, which by the way, is generally what distinguishes it a feast from a regular meal. We all have We all have evidence that we have ample to eat, right? We all have evidence of that. We have plenty of food in this country. We have every I mean, most everybody here, as far as I know, I mean, you have access to having enough, but when you have a special time where there is a huge variety and a huge supply, let that variety and bounty remind you of the manifold mercies, the manifold mercies of God. The rich banquet of His varied graces, individually seasoned for every aspect and stage of your life. Enjoy the many varieties of the goodness of God to you. Be conscious of that. And ninth ninth and last, share God's bounty with those around you. Share. And you actually see that if you look at the text in Esther here, um, verse 22, look at that. He says, uh, the end of the verse, it should be that these should be days of feasting and gladness and for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So how can you make it a holy feast? You can do so by sharing God's bounty with those around you. When your cup runs over, And let's just take this in the spiritual realm. When your cup runs over spiritually, when you're in that season of life, right? When you're in the season where God's spiritual blessings are just overwhelming you, why did God do that to you? Not just so you could sit there in your little cozy chair and just be all happy. That is part of it. He wants to lavish His love upon you. Not just so you could isolate yourself with your little family and say, "Oh, aren 't we so happy together?" but so that through you he could pour out his mercies and his grace to others around you. Maybe God has put you in a season of blessing specifically because there's someone nearby you who need, who who has who is in a season of drought and and the extra rain that you have been receiving." you can take and dump onto their fields. That's the way it ought to be. That's the way fasting, uh, feasting becomes a true act of worship to the Lord. When God blesses us spiritually, and when God blesses us materially to reach out and to bless others, it is more blessed to what? Give than to receive. Jesus said, when you give a feast... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid in the resurrection of the just. So share God's bounty with those around you. And so let us feast. Let us feast in light of Psalm 103, verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in a time of thanksgiving now. Let's spend a few moments in prayer together. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice that we can even call you Father. We rejoice through the one and only Son that You have, our Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is in Him. Our life is wrapped up in Him. He's our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our glory. We come to You in Jesus' name. And we rejoice at all that You have given us, all of the blessings with which You have lavished us. You have given us life. We breathe in, and we feel our lungs fill with air, and our bodies are enlivened, we eat good food, and we taste such an incredible variety of tastes, and we remember that you are good, we open our eyes to stand in wonder and awe at the things that you have made. And we say to ourselves, you are good. Your rain falls upon this country, upon this world. Your sun rises every day. You sustain this feeble, frail humanity upon this planet by your Merciful kindness. You do not give to humanity what we deserve, but rather you show that you love the world every morning when the sun rises. We bless you for these things. We bless you for family and for love. We bless you for, for spouses, for children. We praise you that you instituted marriage to demonstrate your great love and faithfulness for your bride. Your commitment to your people and your determination to bring them into union with yourself through your son, Jesus Christ. We bless you for that forgetting to see the joy of that, to imagine the joy that is yours and will be ours as you continue to draw us in into union with you. We bless you for Jesus Christ our Lord in whom all things come together, in whom everything is restored, We bless you for displaying for us such great love upon the cross of Calvary. We do thank you for the country in which we live now. We bless you for raising up godly men and women and that even today, In some inexplicable way, there is an undercurrent of Christian worldview still shaping things. Lord, we we, uh, are grieved that that worldview is being resisted actively, but we praise you that it's there somehow, inexplicably, even among those who resist it that we have the benefit. We're sitting here on a Lord's Day in your house for the great part unencumbered with the demands of the workplace. We have Bibles in our hands, the likes of which the people of God and all of the history of this world have hardly ever seen. We praise You. We bless You for the ability to open these words on our phones and to walk and to memorize them and to hide them in our hearts. We praise You for the sustenance that they have given to us. In the face of all opposition, we pray You would give us hearts and minds to see more clearly this week the many varied manifestations of your kindness. Lord, we could go on and on. but We bless you today for who you are for us in the person of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.